Well, I hate moving. It's one of the things I hate the most in life. I hate moving. And last year on this day, October, or what month are we in? March 31st. <laughs> of 2012, one year ago today, um, Rachel and I, my wife, we moved from our loft in the River Market downtown to our house at the corner of 74th and Grand, which we love. And uh, I think at the heart of why I hate moving so much is not just the work of it, though, let's be honest, I don't really like moving lots of heavy stuff around, but more than just having an aversion to lifting heavy things, what really I think makes me hate moving so much is that when you move, life just seems out of control, right? I mean, even if it's the most well-organized, well-planned, well-executed move, it's just, on that day, it's chaos. I I mean, I don't know, and not just that day either. It's like for weeks afterwards where you're like, where's the olive oil, mister? We still haven't found that. Or or where's my shirt? Or where's that pair of shoes? Nothing's in its place. You can't find what you're looking for. And, you know, I love to feel in control, to know how things are going to go work out, where the stuff that I need is at, and to be able to find it quickly, to have order. And in moving, all of these things evaporate instantly. And, and when I say that I want to be in control, I don't think it necessarily means that I like to even be in charge or, or be a controlling person. In fact, when it comes to moving day, I'd rather be the, the last person in charge. Um, but I do love structure, and I love order, and the control that that brings, the organization. You know, and it seems like sometimes life is just a constant battle for who's in control, right? I mean, I'm realizing that when life is out of control, we tend to feel either anxious or angry, or or sometimes both. When life is out of control, we tend to feel either anxious or angry, or sometimes both. And on our moving day, I think I definitely felt both of those things at uh, at certain points throughout the day. You know, I was anxious about, would the truck be there? You know, you always book this rental truck, but you're like, is it going to be there when I show up? Are people going to actually come to help me? Is the truck that I booked actually big enough? Um, and, and to be honest, it really wasn't actually big enough, but thankfully enough people brought pickup trucks and SUVs that we were able to get it all in one load. And even actually just retelling this story right now, I'm beginning to feel anxious again that day. Um, And probably I felt angry a few times throughout the day. I don't have a specific memory for that, but definitely anxiety. You know, when you stop and think about it, so much of life is a constant battle for who's in control. It really is. And we see this in our families, right? You know, it's parents and and kids, you know, who's really in control? Parents, I know you feel that, this battle, who really has control in the family. Um, I see it in my neighborhood uh, when I see people walking their dogs. I see this like 175-pound human being walking this eight-pound Yorkie. And sometimes I'm not sure who's in control in that situation. The battle for control exists even at that level. Uh, We feel it in relationships too, don't we? I mean, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, with your spouse— I mean, who gets to make the decision when there's a disagreement about where to eat or what to watch or or where to go, right? And actually, I feel like no one actually captures that struggle in relationships better than than George Costanza uh, from Seinfeld. So watch this clip. All right, I'm sorry. What about her? What, you think I'm going to repeat the whole thing, Lou? I know. You told me you like her. Everything's going good. No, everything's not going good. I'm very uncomfortable. I have no power. Why should she have the upper hand? Once in my life, I would like the upper hand. I have no hand. No hand at all. She has the hand. I have no hand. I mean, do we feel like we all want the upper hand, but we have no power, it feels like sometimes. We can't get the upper hand, but we all want the upper hand. For once, we just want the upper hand, whether it's at work or at school or with our sports 
teams, or whatever it might be, we all long for that control, to have the upper hand. But ultimately, who is really in control? As we come to this passage in Matthew 28, we see Jesus making a pretty audacious claim about who is really in control. And this morning, as we look at this passage together, we're going to ask three questions. The first question is, what does Jesus claim? What does he claim? And then second, what gives him the right? And then lastly, what are my options? So what does Jesus claim? What gives him the right? And then thirdly, what are my options? So first, what does Jesus claim? What claim does Jesus make in this text? In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus speaking to his followers just shortly after his resurrection, he makes this claim. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. I mean, what must it have been like for the disciples to hear those words, all authority? Well, the text tells us that some believed and some doubted. And actually, if you back up a little bit further in the chapter, you realize that some people were downright hostile to this idea. And and sure, the world of the first century, the world of the disciples was a lot different than our own. And yet, they still struggled for control. They still struggled for authority and struggled with authority as much as any of us. I mean, they lived in the world of the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. And they had just seen weeks earlier... With the crucifixion, what happens to those who would dare stand in the way of the authority structures of their day? You see, from the very beginning, authority, or I should say misplaced authority, has been a problem with the world, a central problem with the world. And we see this all throughout the storyline of the Bible. Even if you're brand new to the Bible, this is something that it's so easy to begin to track. There's sort of four big chapters that organize the Bible. There's four big sections. We see the first section is creation, what ought to have been. This is how God designed the world to be. And human beings are made in the image of God in this creation to glorify him. This is the world as it ought to be. The next chapter of the story is the fall. It's what is now that sin and rebellion and brokenness have entered into the world. The third chapter is redemption, what can be because of Jesus. And then the last chapter is new creation, what will be one day when the world is fully restored. So you can kind of remember this, it's ought, creation, what ought to have been, the fall, what is, redemption, what can be, and new creation, what will be one day. You see, in creation, we see as human beings made in the image of God that we were given authority and power to wisely and carefully and selflessly care for and rule over God's good world with him and under him. And so there's a certain goodness to our desire to feel in control. If we were made for this, we were made to be good, wise rulers, caretakers of God's world. However, in the fall, in the is, authority is radically misplaced. You see, in the fall, Adam and Eve rebelled and they attempted to take authority that was not rightly theirs. They chose to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, what was good and bad. But sadly, tragically, they were in no place to make those kinds of decisions. And as a result, their rebellion plunges the world into darkness, chaos, and abuse of power. 
But you see, the contention of the gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, and really the contention of all of the Bible is that Jesus is the linchpin of the story on which everything turns and which authority is finally restored to its proper place. Because when you look at Jesus and you look at who he is throughout the New Testament, there's one thing that is clear, and that is that Jesus can't be Jesus unless he is king. New Testament scholar Jack Dean Kingsbury points this out. He has an insightful book called Matthew's Story, and he plots the plot of Matthew. And he says, Matthew makes it exceedingly plain that whether directly or indirectly, the issue of authority underlies all the controversies Jesus has with the religious leaders, and it is therefore pivotal to his entire conflict with him. See, this is always the point of conflict with Jesus. We're happy to have Jesus as as our friend. We're happy to have Jesus as as a teacher. Happy to have Jesus as, as homeboy, Jesus as social activist. We're even happy to have Jesus as forgiver of sins. But Jesus is king. Jesus as the one with all authority. And that's where things start to get a little uncomfortable, at least I know for me. So Jesus' claim here is clear. He says, I have all authority. Next question we must ask then, what what gives him the right to make this claim? What gives Jesus the right to say, all authority has been given to me? That's a pretty outrageous claim. So what gives him the right? Again, I wonder what must have been going through the minds of the disciples when they heard Jesus say those words, all authority. And I wonder if some of them thought back on the promises on the promises that God had made to his people in the Old Testament. I mean, I wonder if some of the things were starting to click. I mean, these 11 that were there with him, I mean, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Torah, these scriptures. And I wonder if some things were starting to make sense. Maybe they thought, Jesus, maybe he is really the one. Maybe he really is the Messiah, this one who all the promises of God are finally finding the pinnacle of their fulfillment in. And if you've been coming to Christ's community for the past few weeks or even a few months, you know that recently we've been engaged in something we're calling Open Here. And Open Here is simply just a church-wide effort to begin developing a habit of reading the Bible together every day. And and if you're newer here with us, you can jump into this at any time. If you go on our website, there's a button right at the top that says Open Here Daily Bible Reading. Just click on that. You can learn all that you need to there. And as we begin reading in this Old Testament, as we've been reading the Old Testament together and open here, we've encountered a number of these promises, these promises that look forward to Jesus. And we've seen a lot of inadequate rulers. I mean, if you were here last week with Samson or, or with the judges, even we've been reading about a lot of really inadequate rulers. But we're about to a place in the Old Testament, in our open here reading, where finally Israel gets a pretty good leader, King David. And while King David is far from perfect, he's moving God's people in the right direction, although we will very quickly see that he is as desperate for a savior as any of the rest of us are. And he may be a ruler, but he also needs someone to rule him. But early on in David's life as a king, God makes him an incredible promise. God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, he says, In your house, in your kingdom, David, shall be made forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. 
You see, this promise finds its completion in Jesus' humanity and in his divinity. In his humanity, Jesus is a direct descendant of David, and Matthew makes this point really clear in the first part of his gospel. And Jesus in his divinity is truly the only one who could be an everlasting king, who could have an everlasting throne. And certainly we could look to lots of places in the Old Testament where we see Jesus predicted in his death. But I wonder if on that day, on the mountain, as Jesus says these words to his people, I have all authority, if some of them didn't think back to the promise to David of this everlasting king. But no doubt all of them, if they weren't thinking about the Old Testament, were thinking about the events of the last few weeks, right? I mean, they were still trying to wrap their minds around what had just happened with Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, and that even stranger thing that happened a few Sunday mornings ago when they all came on the empty tomb. They were still trying to wrap their minds around it, trying to make sense of what they knew. They knew that Jesus had been crucified. They knew that. I mean, they had watched it happen. They knew that he had died. They knew that he had been crucified. I mean, they'd seen a Roman soldier shove a spear through his side just to make sure that he was really dead. They knew he was dead. I mean, they had buried him. They had buried him. But then the women showed up that Sunday morning. and They didn't find him in the tomb. Instead, they found the guards laying on the ground and an angel there in front of the tomb. The stone rolled away. And the angel says this, this to them, to these women. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that Jesus who you seek, who is crucified, he is not here, for he has risen. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go and quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so the text continues. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy to run and tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So what gives Jesus the right? What gives him the right to make this claim of having all authority? What gives him the right is that he is the only king. He's the only ruler, the only leader, religious or otherwise, who has defeated death. His claim of absolute authority is based on the fact that he has conquered death. And yet he exercises that authority without any coercion or abuse. I mean, think about Jesus as the one who says, I have all authority. But think about who Jesus is. Think about what Christianity is. Christianity at its heart. Jesus at the core of who he is, is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. There's no abuse of power there. There's no coercion. There's no force. You see, what we see in the resurrection of Jesus is that only a king who has conquered death can rule your life. Only a king who has conquered death can rule your life. But what does Jesus conquering death have to do with authority? Well, death is the enemy, right? 
I mean, death is what we all fear. Death is all around us. I mean, talk about a constant struggle for who's in control. I mean, from the moment that we are born, the most basic struggle for who's in control in our life is the battle against death, about staying alive, about taking another breath, about waking up each morning, about getting food. Every one of us fights death from the moment we're born until the moment we inevitably succumb to us. I mean, there's been billions of us at this for however long we've been here, and not a single one of us has yet beat death in its battle for control. And those of you struggling with illness this morning or watching those you love struggle, those of you who have recently lost a loved one, even those of you who are just getting up in years, you know this, don't you? We all fight against death, and we're losing. The most fundamental battle for control we face is the battle against death that sin has brought into the world. It wasn't supposed to be like this. But one person, one person did overcome death. Jesus beat death. He destroyed its power. No other leader, no other person, no other religion can claim that. I mean, there are lots of religions and systems of self-help and and health and all that, books that will help you live a better life, maybe even help you live a longer life, but not one of them has conquered death for you. Uh, N.T. Wright, who is perhaps the foremost New Testament scholar of our time, especially when it comes to Jesus and the resurrection, writes this. He says, what we are witnessing in the resurrection stories which obviously are quite unlike any other stories before or since, and therefore invite the skepticism they have received as much in the ancient world as they do in the modern world. What we see in those resurrection stories is the birth of new creation, of new life. So we've looked at what Jesus claimed and what gives him the right to make such a claim. And now we need to ask the question, so, so what are my options? What are my options? In light of who Jesus is and, and how he lived and what he taught and how he died and how he apparently rose from the dead, what are our options? Well, the first option that we have is reasonable doubt. In fact, reasonable doubt is really the inevitable option that we have when we come to the resurrection. I mean, as N.T. Wright pointed out, the, by, by its very nature, the resurrection is this one-off thing that's an unrepeatable event. And so it invites skepticism no less in the ancient world than in our world today. I mean, whether you lived in, it lived in the first century or you live in the 21st century, there's one thing that everyone knows is that, that dead people stay dead. I mean, that's been a good rule of thumb whether you live now or 2,000 years ago. People in the ancient world didn't sort of just expect people to be rising from the dead. If there's a good rule of thumb, it's that dead people stay dead. And therefore, the resurrection naturally invites reasonable doubt. I mean, remember verse 17 that was read for us earlier. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And that verse is actually such an encouragement to me, because the they in that verse are Jesus' 11 closest followers who have have the resurrected Jesus right in front of them, standing there. They can reach out and touch him, and it says, and some of them doubted. I mean, I can, I can sympathize with that. I mean, don't we all doubt a story of a guy who's clearly crucified, dead, rising again? I mean, dead people stay dead, right? This isn't an easy thing to make sense of. 
And you see, the reality for most of us is that it's not a matter of if we will face a doubt about Jesus and the resurrection, but rather it's a matter of what we do when we do inevitably face doubts about Jesus and the resurrection. And then there are basically, there's two main options with doubt. Either willful belief or willful disbelief. And both are a choice of the will. Both require faith. And we'll talk about both of those in a moment. But before we do that, I want to pause here and say that doubt in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, it can actually be one of the best things for your spiritual growth if you let it push you toward faith. I love this. Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church in New York City in the heart of Manhattan, he writes this. He says, faith without some doubts is like a body without any antibodies. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. So listen to your doubts. Learn from them. Don't be afraid of them. Let them push you closer to God. I love how Frederick Buechner, a great author, puts it. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I like that picture. Doubt, however, isn't a place where we can stay forever. Our doubt will take in in one of two directions, either in willful disbelief or willful belief. So first, willful disbelief. Uh, The Oxford-trained theologian and molecular biophysicist Alistair McGrath makes a helpful distinction between doubt and unbelief. Uh, He writes in this very helpful book called Doubting that doubt isn't skepticism, the decision to doubt everything as a matter of deliberate principle, nor, he says, is doubt unbelief, the decision not to have faith in God. He says unbelief, and I think this is key, he says unbelief is an act of the will rather than a difficulty in understanding. So unbelief is something that we decide, I'm going to not believe in that, rather than simply having doubts or, or having a full understanding that it's causing us to question. So what motivates us? What motivates you to reject or twist faith? What is keeping you from fully embracing Jesus as king? Maybe it's a content issue. I mean, maybe someone, you know, drug you here this morning, you know, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse, and, and you don't even really want to be here this morning, and maybe you didn't grow up in the church, and you're here, you're like, I don't even know what this Christianity thing is about. And you're asking me, do I want Jesus to be the king of my life? I don't, even, I don't even know enough about that yet. So maybe it's a content issue. Maybe you just need to learn more before you can even have doubts. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a coherence issue. Maybe you've been around the church for a while and you know a number of Christians. Maybe you've even been a part of a Bible study. You've read some Christian books. But there's still some things that just don't seem like they fit together for you, that, that don't cohere, that don't... It's like, how can, how can God be all good and there still be evil in the world? Or maybe there's some questions like that that you're like, I think I get this, but there's still some issues that, that are keeping me from fully embracing this. But I think for a lot of us, I think it's the cost that pushes us into willful disbelief. I think for so many of us, it's the cost that pushes us into willful disbelief. The resurrection might be true. I mean, it's at least possible, right? But if it is, you know your life would have to change. And you'd rather keep on battling for control 
then give it to the one who rose again. So ask yourself this, would you even want to believe? Would you even want to believe? Having beliefs means living by them. Unless, of course, you're this guy. I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want... So what do you think he's going to say after that? If they get in the way of the thing I want... What is he going to say? I just do whatever it is that I want. Actually, he says it a little more colorfully than that. That's why we cut the clip off there. Um, But he's just a little too honest, isn't he, right? Like, I have these beliefs, but the moment they get in the way of the thing that I want to do, I just do whatever I want. So sometimes, if we want to be honest, it's just easier not to believe and just keep doing what we want to do. See, Karl Marx famously called religion the opiate of the masses, uh, but Nobel laureate Shizlef Malos disagrees. He says, a true opium of the people is the belief of nothingness after death, a huge solace for thinking that we are not going to be judged for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, and murders. You see, the secularist has as much motivation to disbelieve God as the Christian does to believe in him. None of us want to be ruled. None of us want to be governed. We certainly won't want to be obedient, and we don't want a judge who's going to hold us accountable, not an all-knowing, perfectly righteous judge. But I think the question that we all have to wrestle with, and if we don't want someone else to rule our life, then that means that it's up to us to rule it. But what really happens when we're in charge of our lives? I mean, I think back over the course of my own life, and it's like, okay, there was middle school Bill who spent every dime he had buying Star Wars action figures. I mean, I don't want that guy ruling my life. Um, There was teenage Bill who ignored his family a lot to hang out with his friends, and he was a jerk to his sisters. I don't know if I want that guy ruling my life. And what about me five years ago? I look back on my life five years ago, man, I've learned some things from then, but what about 10 years from now? What about now? I mean, every time I look back over a period of time and I look back at my life, I'm like, I don't really want, I would invite middle school me into my life now and say, go ahead, run my life. So what makes us think that at any given point we're doing a better job than we were five, 10, 10 years ago? We need someone else to be in charge. Are you afraid of his authority? It's a battle for control. What do you need to let go of? According to Pascal, in faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So ask yourself, do I even want to believe? Do I even want to believe? Knowing that if I believed, that meant things would change in my life. Knowing that if God really existed, I'd stand before him one day. Do you really want to believe? Well, doubts can also push us towards willful belief. They can strengthen and enrich our faith. Willful belief involves two things. It involves turning from and turning to. Turning from and turning to. 
It involves turning from ourselves and trying to rule our own lives and trying to be in control and save ourselves, a self-salvation project. And it involves it turning to Jesus, the only one who can truly rule our lives, the only one who can truly rescue us, who can truly save us. So what would it look like in your life for him to be in control? What are the things that you are holding on to? What do you need to let go of? You see, Jesus is the only one who really has the right to rule your life because he's the only one who died for you. I mean, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, they they didn't die for you. They can't die for you. Your spouse can't die for you. Your job can't die for your sins. Your addiction can't save you. Every other religion in the world offers good advice about how to live a better life, but only the gospel, only the gospel offers good news. And the difference between good advice and good news is simple. Good advice tells you what you should do, and good news tells you what has already been done. Good advice tells you what you need to do, what you should do. Good news tells you what has already been done. Religion tells us what must be accomplished, what we must do to be rescued, what we must do to rescue ourselves. But the gospel tells you the good news that Jesus has already accomplished everything necessary to rescue you and save you. This week at Christ Community, we received an email from someone who had just trusted Christ for the first time, just literally last week. And he told us we could share his story with you. I want to read you his email. This is what he writes. He says, I was raised in a family that was not religious. In fact, I would say that they were against all religion. I was taught that believers are weak people and that the church was money hungry. For a long time, I considered myself an atheist. And I lived like it until I met my wife 10 years ago. She introduced me to Christianity, but I didn't like it. I didn't have time for it. I didn't have a purpose for it, etc. Basically, I was stubborn and refused to open my eyes. And then he goes on. He says, I kind of view it like I built a castle around myself so big so that nobody could get in. And then he talks about his encounter with Christ. And he says, I felt like my castle began to crumble and my heart opened. All of a sudden, I could see how wrong my life was. I saw that I could not hold the weight of the world on my shoulders like I thought I could. I truly believe that Jesus came to me even though I wasn't looking for him. And I love his last line. He says, I feel like I finally have relief about everything in life. I don't feel like I need to control the world and I can breathe. Many teachers will stand up and tell you how to live your life. But no one else has given their life to give you life. Only one who has conquered death can rule your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have sent Jesus to conquer death, that we now live in a world where death does not have the final word. I pray for us as as your people, as those here trying to figure out what in the world all of this means, that you would meet us where we're at this morning, and that the power of the gospel, the good news of what you have already accomplished on our sake, 
would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we celebrate communion most weeks here at the Brookside campus as a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And in communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. One of the reasons we celebrate communion so often is that we want to recognize that we are not just brains, but that we are bodies as well. And that the gospel isn't just proclaimed to our minds, but that that it touches all of who we are. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, know that you don't have to be a member of Christ Community Church or this be your church home in order to celebrate communion. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus, who has said, Jesus, you are in control of my life I trust you alone, is welcome at his table. If you're not sure you're there yet, if you're here with a guest and, or as a guest or with a friend, and you're like, I don't even know about what all this is about yet. This is not a time where you feel like you have to come. You can just use this time to reflect and to pray and to think. And when you do come, just gather in groups of four or five around the communion stations. There's four communion stations around the room, two in the back, two up here in the front. The one in this back corner has... Uh, gluten-free communion elements available. And just take the bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together as a group. Um, it works best if you exit kind of through the side aisles and then return through the, the center aisle. Um, I know the pews are tight, so if you need to kind of climb over one, someone to get in or get out, it's okay. We're used to that here as a family. Um, so take your time this morning. Don't feel rushed. Enjoy the goodness and beauty of the gospel. Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for each one of you after they had eaten he took the cup and he said this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins and then he called his disciples do this in remembrance of me so I invite you now to do this in remembrance of Jesus for his death and his glorious resurrection Come to the Lord's table when you're